Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Lives podcast. The show that explores life purpose by taking you on a journey into different people's unique and somewhat squiggly worlds. We're your hosts, Helena and Claire. Welcome to our second ever episode when we talk to Matt Brown, an astrophysicist, independent researcher and academic. We cover topics such as the origins of meditation, the Indus Valley, plant medicine, self-motivation and the mind. Matt talks openly about his life journey and his personal motivations. We delve deeply into his thought processes and the inner workings of our minds. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Matt. Thanks for being one of our first guests. Let's begin by talking a little bit about your background and what inspired you to do a PhD in astrophysics. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Helly. Thanks for having me on. Um, looking forward to uh, chatting to you. Um, I lived, yeah, lived in this really small fishing village. Um, I was surrounded by nature and surrounded by, um, in the evening, you know, time I could go and sit on the cliffs and I could look at the stars or sit on the beach. And I, you'd see just, I was very fortunate to be able to see the Milky Way with the naked eye, which was gorgeous. There was no um, light pollution. I was just looking out to sea and you could see all the stars and you would often see you know, meteor showers, you would, um, when the comet uh, Hale-Bopp came uh, into view on Earth, we got to see it down um, down in Cornwall, probably about three weeks before you were supposed to sight it. It was really incredible, really incredible. So I had this really fortunate um, facility to be able to sit and look at these things for free on a nightly basis. And of course, the mind sort of wanders naturally as it does with anybody to these sort of bigger questions of what's beyond of what lies out there and sort of juxtaposed with that was the um at the same time i was i was being sent to um a methodist church on a sunday to sunday school by my parents who weren't say uh, who aren't uh, sort of overly religious but thought that probably that would be a good um grounding in uh, I don't know morals or whatever is for a young boy to be uh, hearing and surrounded by growing up and again there were lots of questions that I had related to this notion of God the the, the Christian notion of God that um, led me again to thinking about what lies beyond so the idea of doing astrophysics um, really was as a way of trying to find out answers to these bigger questions. I used to tell people in the first year of my sort of undergrad degree and probably a little bit beyond, it probably got a little bit old. When I met, you know, you're at part student parties and people would say, you know, why astrophysics? Well, actually, first of all, people would often say, what's it like doing astrology? And I'd say, okay, you have to have a discussion. It's not astrology, it's astrophysics. <laughs> and then they would, and then if I would say to them, you know, I'm trying to decipher uh, you know, the handwriting of the divine. I'm trying to figure out what um, eventually, hopefully, what uh, lies beyond, what lies beneath the, the, the constructs that we see um, with our technologies. So I think really it was just this curiosity about really big questions that led me to that. Fascinating. Um, did you say that your religious upbringing or the, the little bit of it that you did have from school, um, 
did that um the religious traditions and teachings did they merge and um carry on into your own sort of scientific research or did you did you hold any of those beliefs within yourself basically or did you leave them behind you and go sort of purely in a um, science route or or could they be are they able to be merged together basically or do you see them as two separate groups um if i look at that if i think about it at the time so as a, as a youth um growing up i found it i found religion incredibly frustrating because i was i was always trying to get answers from um from yeah the the people that were delivering me these messages through the the, the mouthpiece of the church who perhaps could only go so far with their theological understanding so as a as a as a yeah sort of a preteen and then as a teenager i found that incredibly frustrating and i think i was probably at times a little bit curt with um with the vicar because he couldn't give me couldn't give me much subs very much that was substantive other than to to um, sort of recite to me what was in the biblical texts um yeah you know i think anybody growing up you find some story if you're if you're brought up in in any sort of religious tradition tradition you it's very easy to gravitate towards one of the figures within that religious religious tradition and think okay i kind of like what they did i see you know i enjoy some of the things that adventures you know i saw it as adventures we've got this figure in the new testament of jesus who yeah he's just he's like a he's a traveling nomad right in, in pre-benedictine christianity in in europe he would have been uh, referred to as um gyro vague he was a uh a monk without a, um, a monastery, right? He was this person that was going around changing people's minds, changing people's perceptions of, of, um, of God and of religion. So, you know, I found that, that sort of aspect incredibly fascinating. Um, obviously, you can make parallels between things like, you know, first, first chapter of the Old Testament the, of Genesis, there's this whole bit about the creation of, the universe and i'm really interested in later in life i became really interested in cosmographies and cosmologies of other peoples and i think the christian um sort of cosmography is is no less interesting um or i should say uh the cosmography of the abrahamic uh, yeah, abrahamic traditions is no less interesting than uh, lots of other peoples so yeah i do think that that the, the religious upbringing uh, or the religious education that I had certainly was the seed material for that that further exploration. And I would say that, yeah, you know, I think we all. I personally went through a um, a period of time where I was trying to find my place within that spectrum of belief. Uh, about um, divinity, about higher entities, higher intelligences, higher powers. And it was strange because it, in, in church, obviously, that's a given. But as a child, it's obviously not a given. You have to find your own place. So, um, and I think I found that to a degree, or I found a pathway 
to trying to, to solve those problems a little bit further through astrophysics, if that makes sense. That does make sense. So that um, religious upbringing was a drive um, and uh, it gave you self-motivation to find, to go on and find what gives you meaning and what helps you answer the questions that you're interested in. So that foundation um, spurred yeah. you on. Great. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Could you say a bit more about where science and religion agree on the creation, the creation of everything? And also your personal, um, your personal opinion or experiences in relation to that. Yeah, of course. Um, it's interesting because, again, with the Abrahamic religions, um, or if we take Christianity as an example, um, it's very difficult with any religion, with any religious texts, to. To, to look at it and to understand from the perspective of the time um, what's being written was metaphor and what was literal. And I think, you know, there's been through so many filters um, of uh, translation from language to language and oftentimes um, these were oral traditions that were then written down late, much later on. So we have obviously the um, we have the, the 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 memory of the society that is retelling these stories, and we also tell it retelling these uh, shouldn't say stories but retelling these accounts, and then um, we also have then the, the the lens of society as it changes through time, and I think those things are really important. Um, we also know that in um, the time frame certainly that uh, the, Bib the Bible was being put together, um, politics and religion were inseparable. And so I think there was a um, often, yeah, there was some political slant to things that were happening um, from a religion in a religious context, perhaps as there still is today, I'm, I'm a little bit unsure. So if we take, yeah, if we, I mean, if we take, um, yeah, whether it's sort of Judaism or whether it's um, Islam or whether it's Christianity, we can see that there is this notion of um, the, there being nothing um, before the universe was created, but outside of that nothingness, there was this uh, there was this deity that then created everything. Right. So, um, what's interesting to me about that is that it's always a male figure in the Abrahamic religions, it's a male figure. And yet in most, in, in a lot of other religious traditions, it's a female figure that births the universe. And that, that notion of, um, of birthing, of having to go through some physical process, uh, having to sort of gestate the universe for a period of time, having to nurture that and give part of yourself to that uh, and being a part of that is a really, I think a really powerful, um, it's really powerful symbolism in that. Whereas the notion, you know, from, again, from the Bible of, of a male figure, just being able to sort of click their fingers and generate everything means at least I feel that there's a bigger disconnect between creator and creation, other than that kind of sentimentality than there is between the female 
uh, deity and essentially her progeny, right? Her, her, her the, the creation that she's physically made, that she's put some of herself into. So, yeah, for me, again, if we look at um, the role of the feminine within traditions throughout uh, time, the feminine is, alwe is always nurturing. The feminine is always um, uh, sort of, uh, the feminine is always sort of giving as a gift, whatever this is, this thing is that, that they're nurturing, right? So we see the feminine more as sort of, um, well, as like a, as a mother archety archetype in that respect, in the caregiver, uh, as in the, you know, maybe the teacher of the of their creations, whereas the father is is often the disciplinarian and often more detached from that, um, certainly more detached from that maternal bond. So, yeah, so I find it interesting that it was a that it was a, a paternal figure, a kind of uh, a male figure that 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 appears in the in these Abrahamic traditions. And yeah, I don't know what that says about um, the notion of the divine within the Abrahamic traditions versus the notion of divinity in, in other cultures that have these female um, figureheads. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's an interesting one. It doesn't tie in very much uh, to the kind of astrophysics notion, but this, this idea of something being for me the feminine makes more sense that this notion of something being created from within a a context that is um indecipherable to us within that context so you know if we imagine we're a we're um if we, we could cast our minds back to the pre-birth scenario just before birth, and we could imagine, we could see ourselves in the womb, we would have no clue what this surrounding uh, landscape was, right? We've, we've spent nine months in there, and the, and the, the last portion of that certainly, um, or pr just prior to, to giving birth or to, to being born, we know that our senses are separating out and there's a time within the womb where we're, we're uh, seeing uh, sounds and we're sort of hearing smells and we're, we've got this uh, synthesisia going on within the womb. Now, that means that our landscape is completely different. The landscape that we're taking through our senses is completely different. And we could never imagine the landscape of tables and chairs and you know computers and trees and dogs and all these kinds of things from within that uh, sort of synthetic uh, context so I, I think that that notion of the universe in which we exist being generated from within something um, incomprehensible is a lovely you know it, again it's a fairly sentimental quite sentimental but I think it's it even from a strictly scientific perspective I think it perhaps warrants as as has been done through several avenues further um further investigation the notion that there was absolutely nothing and then all of a sudden there was absolutely everything yeah seems uh yeah more tenuous to me than than 
this notion of gestation and birth. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is it um, more Eastern religions that have this kind of concept of the divine feminine in them rather than the Western? Um, yeah, yeah, I think certainly, certainly to them for, for, yeah, for quite a long time in the past. Yes, I think that was the case. Um, again, we have to be careful, I think, uh, if we're talking about sort of monotheistic religions or polytheistic religions, obviously they differ. And again, we can take the European Celts and they had um, mother, divine mother figures as well as sort of divine sort of father figures in that respect. So, but yes, I would say we more traditionally associate that with, yeah, the Eastern traditions, yeah. This is probably a, a good time for you to talk a little bit about your current research and what led you to your current research, what inspires you? So I was living, I was living in Prague and I was editing some work uh, for some friends um, who were doing uh, in various stages of their PhD and they wanted some work editing um, in English. They were Czech speakers and they just wanted me to check their English uh, yeah the English work so I was doing that for a few friends uh, outside of my daily job I'd had this notion um, I was fascinated personally by the idea of um, meditative practices um, throughout the world sort of throughout time and as I tend to do when I have this kind of nagging um, curiosity is I sort of build in my head this it's gonna say it's a little bit odd but I, I build a, a sort of sphere in the back of my head and I populate the sphere with all these ideas and as I as I come across tidbits of information or papers that I should read or articles that lead to things I sort of stack them in this sphere in the back of my head and sort of rearrange them and sort them out and slowly but surely something uh, materializes from this sort of chaos within this sphere so whilst i was editing this work i was having this idea and uh, i'd been doing some reading and i think when you pursue something uh and you know and, it, and it's and it's and it feels right and it seems right and you're finding um you're able to find contextual links to your idea. Um, I think that's a, often a good sign that you're onto something um, at least worth your time to pursue to whatever point it, it ends. And that's where I found myself. So um, yeah, so I was working and I was doing this in my spare time. And then one day a friend sent some, uh, some, uh, items through to be edited and one of these items was a call for uh, abstracts for a conference in Prague this was in 2018 um, so by this time yeah things were sort of bec had become solidified in terms of my ideas so I submitted a paper um, for this conference and it was really um, it was really that conference that, that really sort of I suppose pushed me to um, to take something that had been a bit of a hobby and really spend some time trying to focus on it and write this thing up. And again, having that goal, having that endpoint, um, 
was obviously very motivational. But again, I found it it wasn't um, yeah, it wasn't a particular, it wasn't a struggle. It was I I was taking information from uh, multiple disciplines. I'd had this. I think I had a clear idea about where I wanted to go with this. And uh, again, I was I didn't know so much the endpoint. I would just have this. I did this methodology of how I could see if this was the case and it, it all came together. So, yeah, so my, uh, yeah, my notion is about the birth of meditation in actually sort of ancient, well, ancient India, ancient Pakistan. Um, and yeah, about some of the things that could have triggered the birth of meditation within um, the Indus Valley culture. I would like to backtrack slightly um, and talk a little bit more about your process. It's quite interesting when you mentioned this sphere at the back of your head and how you sort of then populate it with information and, and um, make sense of it. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course I can do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I have a terrible, I have a, a pretty terrible memory. I've always had a, a fairly terrible memory. So um if i yeah so if i try and recall uh lots of information it just doesn't work but i'm i don't know maybe i'm more of a i don't know i know the learning styles thing is not so in vogue at the moment but certainly i i think i learn more visually i can think about this through the lens of languages if i'm trying to learn a language if I see a word written down, for example, I'll be much more likely to be able to, um, to rec not to remember it, but I'll be able to use it then more frequently because I've seen it written down. So I feel as though I'm a much more visual learner. So if I can build, yeah, like dioramas or even if it's just a sort of mind map or something in the back of my head in these bubbles and I can generate, I can imagine a sphere or I can generate the sphere. It's not really imagined. It, you know, to all intent and purpose, it's there. It's within the mind, right? So, we generate these things in our minds. Um, so yeah, so I have these various spheres, and I can jump into them. That's the other thing I didn't mention. You, I go, you know, I sounds a bit odd, but I sort of go. I go inside them, and within these spheres are all of these pieces that I have sort of thrown in there and then I can manipulate the pieces and then I you know if it's something like um, if it's a more cosmological idea I can then start the system I can mess around with some mathematics I can throw that into the sphere I can start the system I can see how the mechanics work um, if it's clunky or if it doesn't work or if whatever then I can stop the system play around with some mathematics again jump back in in this case, with the um, with trying to solve this mystery, um, visually the way that this um, the way that this uh, sort of manifests itself within this sphere is as a um, yeah as a as a sort of how to describe it. It's weird when you're trying to describe things that are going on in your own head, right? And then you're trying to, it's always going to be a, a very, it's going to be a, always going to be a really pale uh, sort of, um, yeah, picture. 
but essentially I suppose the way it worked was that I imagine the way when I was in this within the sphere it was like being on a uh, essentially I don't want to reduce it to sort of computer game language but it sort, sort of was it was as though I was it was in a landscape that if I was on the right path, I could walk and the landscape would uh, continuously evolve in front of me. And if I was at a, um, uh, an impasse or I was at a dead end, then the landscape, then I could walk and it was like being on a treadmill and I wouldn't go anywhere. And so I knew then, okay, I need to go back and sort of figure these something else out. Have you always had that technique then or is that something that you worked on developing or tapping into and did it like grow over time I think when so when you grow up it's an odd one right because you don't you assume everybody's mind works the same so you grow you, you um yeah you you don't for example I, I have um uh, not not to a degree that really is affects my life but I um have a bit of synthesis or I see uh, numbers as colors so I, I didn't know that that wasn't um ordinary i didn't know that that, that that wasn't the case for everybody so mathematics at school was very difficult i couldn't understand why i had to make visualizations of um of especially al algebra was was very difficult for me and the way i got around that i remember being about 11 being in class i used to daydream a lot there was some algebraic equation that the teacher was trying to get somebody to solve. Uh, those old school board rubbers came flying. One of those came flying past my head. The teacher shouted me, what's the answer? I'd come out of this daydream and I didn't know what the answer was. But then I remembered in the daydream seeing this arrangement of rocks and sticks and seaweed on the beach that I'd arranged. And I looked at the board and I realized that the algebraic equation on the board was essentially this arrangement of rocks and sticks and uh, seaweed that I'd laid out. And on the left-hand side was the problem and on the right-hand side was the solution. So I sort of had to take a minute and translate rocks and sticks and seaweed into algebra and then I could give the answer. So that was when I was, when I was 11 or 12, I can't quite remember now. So I, I imagine that I've all, that some form of this has always been the case, um, but I didn't really, yeah, this, this certainly this sphere aspect, um, I think this came about or must have come about, I can't really remember when, but the notion with this is that I could be doing something <laughs> again, without sounding too odd um the idea is that then the break that that i could be stood viewing through my eyes the world and doing something but in the back room i could be in this sphere messing around with whatever thing i was thinking about so i could partition these two uh yeah sort of sets of functions one was that sort of less cognitively demanding uh, thing that I had to do. And the other was this sphere-based thing that I could do. So it was like being in one of those absorbing bubbles in a big room, looking out and trying to give a lecture or something to people through a microphone, but all the time absorbing. I don't know if that's a, that's a very poor analogy, but yeah. Brilliant. 
quality to have. So I'm yeah. very jealous. <laughs> no, that's really fascinating. I was just going to say that it's almost as if your whole process of working and researching or just living life is that your daydreams sound like amazing ad adventure meditations. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, again, when I was a child, as I said at the beginning, I spent a lot of time often either on my own or with friends but not speaking, and we would just sit and we would just be in nature. And whether that was in the context of um, waiting for the surf to pick up on the beach, whether that was, uh, you know, out back beyond the break, waiting for the next wave. These, all of these, whether it was just sat on the cliffs uh, or sat in, on the moors, just, I don't know, taking in the stars or listening to the animal sounds around you at dusk or something. All of these things were absolutely, they were, they were meditations. I wouldn't have known at some stages in my life um, that that was the case, but they were definitely meditative, absolutely. Um, and I think perhaps this shift in terms of the spheres was partially to do with the fact that I left um, that village setting to go to university and I went to the city and all of a sudden I was in a place that was much busier and much more demanding of your attention. And so how do you then find that space and that quiet and that, um, uh, yeah, that mental solitude to be able to um, do that thing that I'd been doing when I was back home in the country, right? So perhaps that um, sort of bifurcation of, of, uh, of my thinking process has happened as a result of that, I'm not sure. And do you think your mental processes and your interest um, in them, in your own personal life, have then fed into why you're now researching meditation in your research and sort of hobby life as well. Yeah, I think from the, from the outside perspective, yes, I think so. I think again, part of the allure for me was the fact that people left the cities and went back to the countryside. And I think there's something, you know, if we're gonna, if I was gonna read into that, there's definitely <laughs> something to that that, that, that mirrors, um, the, the way that I felt mentally within the city context and the way that I felt when I'm living, um, yeah, more closely in nature, I would say. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think part of it is my optimism for the way that um, we might progress as societies in order to find a balance between the very alien um, environment of the city from a natural perspective and um, yeah, nature itself and find a sort of uh, compromise between those two worlds. There's a very interesting article that came out in June of this year in The Guardian actually, which talked about um, some new uh, research that's been happening that's reevaluating the way that ancient cultures built cities. It focuses, I think, on the Mayans, and it talks about the fact that often, um, traditionally, the, the Mayan cities have been thought of as having kind of a very small um, hub, which was the kind of the political, the religious focal, focal point, 
and then the city sort of expanded from there and now they they um the research suggests that actually within that that sort of core political religious center as it were there was still um agricultural uh, elements there were fields within this city and so in fact the that political center as it were or whatever or that, or that city stretched sometimes over 100 kilometers um interspersed with fields and jungle and all these kinds of um natural elements woven into the structure of these temple settings or whatever it was and i, I genuinely think there's something to that we We've seen now for, I don't know, 30 years, a, a real push towards what has been termed like green architecture, trying to re-nature uh, the cities. And whether that's been through low-key sort of grassroots things like guerrilla gardening, which I'm a big advocate, advocate of, I think that's a lovely idea, or whether it's been um, communities taking over disused land and then repurposing that land as um, a place where they can grow their own food. I think it's phenomenal. All of these things are sort of speak to the fact that people understand individually that that connection to nature on some level is absolutely necessary. Whether it's just fighting for your local park to be kept as a local green space you know all of these things it's within us to understand that that, that we understand that connection so yes yeah, so i think all of these elements might have had something to do with me having this idea and pursuing that within the context of the indus valley culture i think what are the key things in the indus valley record that show that they went back to um living in the countryside yeah so you can you can map um, burial sites, uh, sites of sort of activity really easily, uh, and you can sort of put them into um, what's often termed sort of pre-Harappan and then, uh, sorry, Harappan and then post-Harappan cultural times. And we can see um, from that a, a definite mass movement of people from um, from these uh, sort of city, um, yeah, from these cities, the main one that's really been studied, I suppose, um, from this point of view is Harappa and then Mahenjadaro secondarily. But you can directly map the movement of the people over time from these, uh, yeah, very densely populated city settings to these then uh, smaller sort of individual village settings i interestingly enough within still a very i suppose small geographic location but the lifestyle had changes dramatically so they're not trying to reconstruct so when i when i first saw this data for example my my thought was okay maybe something changed about the um indus river maybe it was redirected maybe it dried up these are all maybe maybe that would be the case but then yeah then then at least my understanding would be that then if you moved if you were happy with the way that you were living that something about the environment changed then you would try and find a new location for that and you would rebuild 
in the same you you just start again where you left off in that previous place so then it's very interesting that they didn't do that given the fact that they still had you know the same knowledge the same resources and the same volume of people so there was no big um famine or uh, disease that wiped a lot of people out there was no war that wiped a lot of people out so there was some of the driving factor that that um that moved them uh yeah to to this sort of northeastern uh, part away from harappa and mahenjadara and do you think um these new village sites um created the right conditions for meditation to arise or do you think meditation was um part of their life before that move? I think that, that what happens when they left the cities um, and sort of traveled northeasterly was a culmination of um, a much longer process of piecing together parts of practices that then led to that. So through a period of um, after a period of monsoon intensification within the, within the region, which I should say the Indus Valley was uh, benefited from a, a quite a large overlap between two monsoon seasons. So it was always you know, beautiful conditions for growing things, uh, especially food. So in the um, pre-settlement era where we have sort of hunter-gatherers um, in, uh, yeah, on the sort of steppe, I suppose, was the main, areas they had plenty of um yeah flora and fauna to choose from in terms of their dietary needs then when they move um but uh, but there was a, a period of um aridification which happened it was quite a short and sharp period of aridification and i think this changed well from again from pollen uh, data uh, we can see that it changed the biome in which these people were living so this would have very quickly from a sort of sociological perspective changed the um the uh, bank of foods from which the people could choose to eat and i think this pushed the people into periods of um having to deal with longer and longer periods without very much food sort of periods of what we might call fasting i think this would have been an um this would have become a regular element within the lifestyle of these people searching for for food which was less and less available uh, probably having to travel further to get this food and having to go greater periods of time with uh, much less food one of the interesting things about that um, is that even in society even in cultures today we see that this is one of the elements or one of the techniques that is used for initiating um, what we might call, um, yeah, so what, otherworldly divine experiences, those kind of um, experiences that we might get in other ways in other cultures through entheogens, um, these very religious uh, experiences can also be initiated through various other methods one of those is obviously fasting we can do it through trance you can do it through 
um, sonic driving, which is a technique used at the, um, the Sami in, uh, um, yeah, up in uh, sort of the very north uh, Scandinavian things, used uh, drums uh, and sonic driving as a methodology for entering these trance states. But fasting is a way that we can enter these trance states as well. So. Yeah, so I think that there was this period where the biome changed. They were having to deal with more, longer and longer periods of time without uh, very much food. I think this um, lent itself very naturally to um, longer and longer periods of fasting. And I think within these periods of fasting, um, techniques were developed in order to be able to, if you like, combat this period of time without foods. Now, there were... Again, this, this, this little bit is sort of speculation, but there are definitely ways that I can um, seat, I can sit myself that are going to be less, they're going to be more energy efficient than other ways that I can um, hold myself. If I'm stood up, for example, this is going to be uh, much less energy efficient for my body. I'm having to pump bloody, blood around my body. Um, there's a greater distance from my feet to my head, for example. If I can sit in a more stable position, then I can perhaps um, ensure a more efficient use of the energy that I have. But I think it was this starvation, or not starvation, this fasting um, that, that led people perhaps to have these experiences eventually that they then later, much later, tried to replicate again. I think this was lost, possibly, but the, I think the, um, uh, the iconography around this methodology followed the people into the cities. And then I think the re-emergence of these techniques um, burgeoned again as people left the cities and re-established these, um, uh, these more village-like communities. Can you say a bit more about what sorts of experiences um, the Indus Valley people were having through their meditative practices? One of the mysteries with the Indus Valley, and again, why it's so intriguing to people, is there is very little um, written text. We find very little. The, the majority of the um, of yeah anything produced. For communicating information in Indus Valley is through um, these seals. They were big on making seals. Um, the 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 narrative is that they use these seals to um, uh, to show the location that goods had come from when they were moving it through the the, the territories. Um, perhaps again, the, the way that the Indus Valley was sort of organised was literally these sort of territories that were part of the same larger culture but were governed by um, I suppose chieftain-like um, figures within each territory so the notion was that these seals depicted or communicated some information uh, from one region to the to the next but for example um, there are particular seals that have been found that to me um, and to many others actually indicate that there's more going on than just a simple communication of uh, who I am and where this stuff is coming from. What, what made me want to continue this research was a particular seal 
um, which is called uh, M1181A, which is this beautiful depiction of uh, a figure that looks very much like the descriptions of the ascetics or um, I suppose the um, yogic figures within in the Vedas, um, long hair, bangles on the arms, and, it, and this person is seated in a meditative, in a, in a sort of yogic position, um, meditative position, traditional position. There are some symbols, um, typical Indus Valley symbols written above the person, but that um, seal uh, in itself is a, is a really provocative seal because this, as far as we know, was not um, a part of the... Uh, yeah, the, yeah, it's a really provocative seal because this was perhaps the first time that this kind of seated yogic figure was ever depicted within um, a community, within a society, at least um, to date. Yeah, the, it, this is within the period of time. We can't exactly say when this was made, but um, this is from that particular seal is from Mahenjadaro, and we know that um, this. The, there was a city site at Mahenjo-daro from 3000 BCE to 1600 BCE. So it's quite, it spans quite a long period of time, obviously. Um, there's another beautiful uh, seal which depicts, and this is why this is um, why I think this methodology perhaps developed during the city. I think there were three distinct phases. I think there was a phase when the biome changed and people were having were going through periods of fasting, and this was um, uh, allowing them to enter these um, trance-like states. I think when they when they became city dwellers, um, the the want to access these states for um, purposes of divination, for purposes of um, religious ceremonial uh, situations was still there, but I think that they attained this state through different means. Um, and I think something happened then within those city-states and within that type of practice uh, that then led them to revert to then what became a more honed version of what they'd gone through um, when they were going through these periods of fasting. So the second seal depicts a again a yogic figure sat within a, um, a plant or a tree of some description this is let me get this number this is seal m1186 i think is the number of the seal for those that are listening you can google this um, and m1186 is really beautiful again it has the yogic figure within this uh within this this plant this tree and there's a second figure that is knelt on one knee uh, giving an offering to this uh, to this figure so from um yeah so from a from a sort of rig veda perspective and the hindu perspective this is often seen as um a depiction of shiva um within the plant and offerings there are there are disagreements about what the offering actually is. Some people see it as a severed head. Some people see it, see it as a double, um, 
a double uh, nozzled oil burner, which was typical within that time. Again, very different readings. If you see the seal, you can see why it's. We have to remember is again these. What we're seeing when we see a depiction of the seal is obviously this sort of stamp that was pressed into clay. So these, um, yeah. So again, the, the readings of this and the um, the way that this has been. Uh, the way that the seal was carved perhaps leads to a little bit of um, yeah, interpretation. But what's interesting for me is this, is this um, ah, now actually, I beg your pardon, in M1186, the figure is not seated, I beg your pardon, but has the same appearance as the figure in M1181 with the long hair and the bangles and um, the headdress, which I didn't mention, they have a very particular headdress in both of these seals. Um, so, so this seal one one eight six led me, or was part of, not entirely, but it made me think. Okay, perhaps this practice of connecting with the divine was different in the city states, and so I looked for other seals that might. Um, that might indicate what was happening. So the, the first thing to say is that the, the figure sat in the yogic position doesn't just appear once in one symbol, appears several times in, in different symbols. So in, in uh, M1181A, but also in then um, another uh, seal, which is called M296, which again is beautiful. The, figure has a beautiful headdress with uh, horns and some arrangement in the center and sat in, a, in the yogic position. Again, the same thing, bangles on the arms, um, some intimation of long hair, but it's not as clear in this image. Um, it's really beautiful. And so when I'm trying to sort of piece this together, I, I, I think to myself, okay, well, if I could find some indication of something that was transitionary between um, what was happening in the cities and then that transition of practice from the cities to what happened in these small village communities after the cities were abandoned, then perhaps I could make some greater connections. So what I think was happening in the cities is that they were using, and again, we can see this from the Rig Veda. One of the, the great mysteries in the Rig Veda is this, note, is this um, question of what was the Soma? So we know that the Soma was a, a brew. We know that it was a drink that was given to, um, to, to, to lots of different people, actually. It was given to couples uh, before they uh, got married, before they were sort of betrothed. It was given to um, important figures. And all we really know from the Rig Veda is that it was something that um, was a very profound experience. We know that it, um, it's continued in its practice for a long time and that um, there's very little really known about this. In one of the... Um, passages of the one of the Vedas it talks about the juice being pressed from the stalks of this um, of a particular plant but it doesn't, doesn't say what the plant was 
Uh, often in the uh, Vedas, it talks about the talks about the soma as an admixture of substances, which we would expect. Uh, often um, it's mixed with milk and honey, perhaps to uh, take away a bitter taste of something. In the Indus Valley, I think that water was because water was such a big part of the of the Indus uh, community. I think that um, that a plant that was abundant within that riverine setting would have been a good plant for use within ceremonial settings, as it was abundant. It was it could be multi. Um, it could be used for multiple purposes. There's a there's a, a, a swan seal that was found, which depicts a um, watercraft, some kind of boat, which is made out of um, it looks like reeds. So um, this is now I can't remember the name of this seal. I think it's called I think it's seal thirty. I think it doesn't have a fancy uh, alphanumeric title. I think it's just called seal thirty, and it's a depiction of some kind of water vessel so i think about reeds and i think about um what we know about the chemistry of these reeds so reeds are really uh different there's all different types of reeds the one that i'm interested in that grew around that time in that region is um phragmitis um was well, a variant of phragmitis australis um which is a beautiful um sort of yeah beautiful uh, tall uh, reed plant within its roots it contains a lot of uh, dimethyltryptamine which we know is a um it's an incredible um yeah hallucinogen so the i the notion then came that within so i looked then at the botany of that region when they were in the city states at that time as compared to prior. And what we see within the city-state kind of region is a lot of, um, yeah, it's a riverine environment. Um, there's regular monsoons happening during that period of time. Everything's fine um, in terms of the monsoon regularity. So then we have a lot of this uh, Phragmitis australis, which contains uh, high quantities of dimethyltryptamine in, its, um, in the rhizomes. Then we have accompanied with that um, Peganum harmala, uh, which is a which is often called Syrian rue. This has in it um, a um, an inhibitor. So one of the things about dimethyltryptamine is that it's very fast acting in the body. The body, the liver breaks it down very quickly. And in fact, dimethyltryptamine is a it's a it's a beautiful history of, of uh, the evolution of creatures on the earth. Um, we have a lot to thank for a chemical called tryptophan, which is uh, one that is, um, yeah, which is a beautiful synthesis pathway, which I won't go into, but um, dimethyltryptamine is found in, in, in all green plants to some degree, or the majority of green plants to some degree. So I think that what they were doing in the city state is producing a kind of what we now know as like an ayahuasca analog using um, the reeds, uh, the, the Phragmatis australis, and something like uh, Peganum harmala 
which has a, an inhibitor in it, which is called a monoamino oxidase inhibitor. The chemical in the liver which breaks down dimethyltryptamine is monoamino oxidase. So this inhibitor stops the breakdown of dimethyltryptamine, which means that the experience lasts longer, um, yes, for the person, for the person that's ingested this, this brew. And I think, and we, and I, there's one seal again, apart from the, um, the, the data of the, uh, the pollen and seeds that have been found in fireplaces, um, and various other bits and bobs, the, the, there's one seal, which is really, in fact, really, there are two seals, but one in particular, which uh, the seals, these two seals are called um, H180A and B. Again, beautiful names, really easy to remember, right? So uh, H180A shows a depiction of a, of, of a woman giving birth to a plant, which I, it's just beautiful. It's a really beautiful depiction. Again, it's a, it's um, among um, various other Indus uh, script symbols. There's also the depiction at the beginning of that seal of two animal figures, or I think one animal figure and a human figure. Um, but at the towards the end of that seal uh, piece of seal, there's this beautiful just depiction of a woman uh, giving birth to a plant. The, and I think this is, I think this is a really, I think this is a really uh, strong kind of metaphor for a transition between having gone through periods of fasting and experiencing these trance-like states through fasting, and then having moved into this riverine environment in which there are these plants which can be used for multiple things. They give they give many gifts in terms of their usage and uh, figuring out that they can produce this admixture, which then leads them into these places where they can, um, you know, experience death, overcome death, come back to life. Um, yeah, re renewed and, and reinvigorated and maybe wiser. So that uh, H180A is, is, has this beautiful depiction of the woman giving birth to a plant. And then H180, H180B is, um, just has a, a, a seat, again, just somebody seated as if they're sort of sat with their legs out in front of them, but with this plant coming out of their head and then sort of uh, arms raised in a sort of exuberant state. And these two, I think, are very symbolic of that transition between those states. What do you think we could learn as a society um, from the Indus Valley culture and people? I can't speak necessarily for the Indus uh, Valley people, but I think looking at the trajectory of the culture, what, what I think we can learn from their experience of um, having reached these heights of technological advancement and then having abandoned or lost or whatever happened, having shifted then to a simpler way of living, is that, is exactly that. Perhaps we 
need to review and uh, reassess the way that we the way that we live in um, densely populated areas. Now, I'm not advocating for the abandonment of cities, but um, I think the way that we live within cities is always going to lead to very artificial problems which arise entirely from uh, the want to isolate uh, oneself from nature. I think the, the biggest lesson really is that we can't escape nature. We can't build ourselves uh, out of nature and we need to learn to live again with the natural world rather than trying to find ways to manipulate it or to uh, subvert it or to uh, yeah to ignore it and escape it we need to learn to to reconnect um and on, on all fronts like the 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 rise of um decriminalization of plant medicines for example in in the states is a beautiful thing but we need to understand that any culture that's ever used plant medicines which is pretty much any culture that's ever existed throughout the uh, period of time in which humans have been sort of uh, cognizant of their own of their selves um, yeah any culture that has used plant medicine has has used it as part of their experience of being a part of nature They've never used it as, a, as an experience of nature. They've used it as a way to maybe heighten their connection that they already have with nature. And that's the lesson that we need to reconnect on all fronts, not just on this. It's not just going to be the case of, I don't know, eating some psilocybin mushrooms and all of a sudden, I've got this reconnection again. It's not going to be, and similarly, it's not just the case that we can um, meditate every day and get really proficient in meditation, but do that in the back room of my office in London and then come out and go to work again, right? It's about the, the whole spectrum of connection. Um, and that's, you know, personally, that's incredibly difficult given the 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 way that we live today and yeah and i think the trick is to do to, to find ways to do that personally individually that that mean that you can still yeah still function within the confines of society and not that you just run away to some uh, monastery somewhere up a mountain and eat rice meditate every day and drink water and lead a very simple life life is much more complex than that now but i think yeah so for me the indus valley is a beautiful example of life after cities which i think is a really important lesson and um yeah i think that we're going to see more and more evidence that other cultures again like the mayan um didn't try and build themselves out of nature, but just tried to amplify 
their experience in nature or experience amplify their experience of being nature I should say because that's what we are love it being nature love that a lot um we just had a few last quick fire questions for you um the first one in one word what does the phrase and in quote marks finding your purpose mean to you <laughs> um <laughs> big one big one for one word <laughs> yes it doesn't have to be one word short phrase <laughs> short phrase yeah um finding one's purpose so for me finding one's purpose is about pursuing one's curiosity i think that's that's it you purpose is never going to come through some uh pre prescribed uh, avenue I think it's never going to come through some sort of formulaic uh, maneuvers I think yeah if you pursue what you're what you're curious about what you're passionate about I think that's how you find your purpose it's as sim simple as that I think what is the one book that you would love to share with as many people as possible ah, that's a great one so there are there are you know there are loads of good books. Um, I'm I'm testament to that in terms of yeah how I'm very good at yeah attracting lots of books into my life. Um, there there is, however, a beautiful book um, that was written by um, this incredible spokesperson for an indigenous uh, Brazilian tribe in northern Brazil, and. The book is called how um, the book is called the falling sky. Um, now you're going to ask me the name of the <laughs> person, and this is where I'm going to just. So it's his first name is uh, David, but it's written by um, his name is David Kopanawa. Is called uh, I think, now if you ask me the spelling, but it's called the falling sky. It's a beautiful book. Um, it really sets in place and time the struggle of um yeah of, of indigenous cultures living in this time of sort of yeah traversing to two completely different dimensions they're not just different worlds they're different dimensions the dimension of their traditional ways of living and the dimension of the modern world. It's a beautiful book. Okay, slightly more morbid question, but how would you like to be remembered? I think the most important moments of anybody's life are those moments of small interactions with other people that they care about. And I think the notion of legacy as a as a monumental kind of triumphant uh, yes, notion that you leave behind, that you've done something phenomenal that, okay, people can be inspired by, but that probably has very little connection to other people. If I can give an example, one of the things that, that struck me at an early age reading about famous physicists, for example, was often 
the fact that they weren't particularly nice people. Often the fact that they had um, betrayed people all around them in, in order to further their careers and attain this fame and this notoriety within their particular field. So the idea of doing of some grandiose legacy doesn't really appeal doesn't appeal to me as much as um, through these little through these interactions that I have with people that I care about the the notion of me as an as an idea hopefully will live on in the in the way that other people. Uh, they'll take a little bit of, of something about me with them and that will change a little bit who they are. I think that's the nature of interactions between people. That old adage about choosing your friends wisely is a beautiful adage because your friendship group in the end determines to a degree how you are. And I think uh, we all vibe off our friends and off the people that we surround ourselves with and we change because of that so yeah that the, the small interactions with other people uh the notion of shifting maybe somebody's perspective changing how they think about that thing just having a memory of me doing something foolish like anything like that those little things would be beautiful if i could leave that behind and if you had to give uh, someone one piece of advice or quote about finding your purpose, what would this be? I think don't don't force it. Don't try too hard. Um, life is playful. Nature is playful. This is a very playful experience that we're having. It doesn't seem like that sometimes. When you read the news, when you have particularly difficult events or go through particularly difficult times, but ostensibly life is playful. And we must always remember how to be playful. And I think if you can do that, then you can traverse any situation. Again, it doesn't mean that you are going to be in uh, this enlightened being uh, that nothing that nothing that can ever be thrown at you will affect you know it doesn't happen like that there's a wonderful quote by Ram Das where he says um, if you think you're enlightened go and spend a week with your family right and I think that's a beautiful quote it's true you can again this notion of being able to sit in a monastery and detach yourself from the machinations of daily life and and find inner peace well, yeah, of course, that seems that seems like a no-brainer. If I can extract myself from everything that goes on in daily life, yeah, you know, give me a week, I might find some enlightenment. But it's much harder to do it here. So yes, be playful and enjoy that playfulness in whatever form you find yourself experiencing that playfulness in life. Amazing. I think that's a a good place to to stop that was yeah incredible such a fascinating conversation a lot to a lot to take away actually yeah thank you matt thank you very thank much you, thanks Helen. thanks for listening to the squiggly lives podcasts with your hosts helena and claire 
Head over to our website, squigglylives.com to subscribe and hear more shows. That's all for this episode. See you next time.